disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Way down among Brazilians, coffee beans grow by the billions. So they've got to find those extra cups to fill. They got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. People could see specialty grade coffee. Now, I'm not talking commodity grade coffee, gas station coffee. I'm talking specialty grade coffee, the stuff that we're dealing with. The profit margins from seed to cup are maybe not as much as we like to think they are. What? Is it about the coffee biz? How, pray tell, do you earn a buck in this increasingly, increasingly crowded field? And how do you raise money for a storefront in the era of crowdfunding? We're going to find out. Java up and stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, our favorite market here in Virginia at the top of Carytown. They have Indian Wednesdays, Mexican Fridays, the Beat Cafe, very delightful brunch. Um, the patio is opening up lately with the warmer weather. I urge you to visit them at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining me in studio in historic downtown RVA is Ryan O'Rourke, founder and owner of Ironclad Coffee Roasters, a growing wholesaler here in Scott's Edition. Just turned two, and I understand that you are raising money for your first cafe scheduled to open in May. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks, Robin. It's very nice to finally have you in studio. Thank you. Great to be here. Take me back to why the world in 2016 needed another coffee wholesaler. Well... I had spent about five years with my wife living in Europe, Ireland, specifically the Republic of Ireland, and we had actually moved to Ireland from Richmond. We'd done about a five-year stint prior to going to Ireland, and I was somewhat familiar, I would say quite familiar with the coffee scene in Richmond uh, and where it was when we left in 2011. Spent those five years in Ireland, and the coffee over there... Um, well, to, to, to be kind was, was not good, <laughs> to put it very mildly. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tea drinking country. Uh, it is, a lot of people don't realize this, the number one tea drinking country in the world per capita, maybe number two, depending on which source you consult. So it's, it's very much a tea drinking country. And then, of course, they, they go from there to Guinness and, and Jameson and Bushmills and all that. And coffee would be way down on the list. Now, that is that is changing a bit over there. But um, anyway, so suffice it to say, while we were there, the, the coffee was was quite bad. So I had to learn to, to roast myself uh, while we were over there. And when it was time to come back to the USA, uh, we chose Richmond out of every, you know, we, we looked at the map and we could have gone to any city, town, village in the country to do this. We decided to come back to Richmond because we were keeping a close eye on what was going on here uh, through social media and online while we were in Ireland. And I was noticing the food scene, the restaurants, the beverages, the beers and all this. And I was noticing some changes in the, the coffee scene as well. But one thing I noticed was um, for a city, a metropolitan area the size of Richmond, roughly a million and a quarter or thereabouts, um, I, I would say we're, we're, we're a bit behind compared to other metro but even areas. even after Blanchard's, even after Black Hand, even after the one on the south side, I mean, uh, you know, um, specifically uh, Lamplighter mm -hmm. got a huge amount of press, I believe, when Steven Spielberg was filming Lincoln and insisted on it in his catering trucks and whatnot. Uh, this is no longer kind of a three Starbucks town. I mean, it's very, it's not hard to get a great cup of coffee, a great bag of roast. Yeah, it's not. There's, we, um, we very much respect what others are doing here for sure. Uh, but we, we bring our own flavor 
if if you will, uh, to to Richmond, our own way of doing things, our own way of finding and sourcing beans, and our own philosophy on that, our own way of roasting. Um, things that we stick to, things that we uh, stray away from in terms of the coffees that we roast and the way we roast them, and then just our general approach to business and our general approach to um, to putting the coffee out there and, and how we deal with customers. So it's it's different enough, and honestly, um, I can't believe nothing nothing has really popped up, at least not very much has popped up since we popped up. I, I expected even more to come after we popped up. So it's like you're daring the competition. <laughs> I know. Man. It's, it Are is. you man enough to take me on? Snap into a slim gym. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, we need it. I mean, we we need to become. Um, and that, that's part of what we wanted to do was be one of the catalysts to making Richmond a true coffee town. Which, and I, I say this to people a lot. A lot. Um, we are not a bona fide coffee town yet. We're on our way. Do you really feel we have to become a coffee town? I mean, Portland gets so much press. Austin gets press. Asheville, North Carolina. You have people in the Research Triangle who swear by what counterculture, counterculture coffee. Yep, yep. Uh, where I am from in Miami, Panther Coffee is mm-hmm. the cat's meow. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we do we need to be a coffee we need, hub? We need to be a coffee hub because we are a food hub. We're a beer hub. We're all these other. We're becoming like a cider hub. Why not coffee? Coffee is the most consumed beverage in the world. World, second only to water, which I don't count really as a beverage. Um, it is a beverage, but the only prepared beverage, um, that's it's it's the, the most popular beverage in the world. So why not Richmond as a coffee town? Um, we're a food town. We're a beverage town. Why not coffee? Ryan, could you take me back to 2016 and the um, the kind of the anxiety and the exhilaration of opening up your roastery in Scott's Edition? I mean, for those outside, Scott's Edition is this swath of Richmond that's just been booming. I don't see the big deal. Looks like a giant Superfund site to me. But every, uh, you know, brewery, every restaurant, every millennial-centric condo development wants to be in Scott's Edition. And you took a corner on the boulevard, which was a seedy stretch back in the day, but everybody wants a storefront there now. Um, How do the economics of the wholesale business work? And how did you get a foot in the door with um, retailers with, I've seen you in the venerable West Hampton Bakery for the first time in their multi-decade history, they're prioritizing coffee. How did that work? Well, we we kind of defaulted to Scott's Edition because since we were a roastery and, and not a, a cafe um, doing, doing the actual roasting of the beans and packing of the beans, we had to go with a light manufacturing zone, basically, because that's the way the city looks at us. So that is that's relegated to just a few small pockets in the city of Richmond. And so we kind of almost just defaulted, just kind of stumbled into Scott's Edition by default. And we found a little, a little old building there that uh, was a bunch of kind of odd things through the years. And it was not in good shape. It was in quite bad shape. So we had to... Dump you know a fair bit of money into it just. How to did get you raise it. that money then? Yeah, well, that was you know money we had saved during our time in Ireland, as well as a bit of help from from uh, from family. Um, so that's really how we we came about it, and we had to purchase the roasting machine, which again some of our own money that we had saved, and in addition to some help from uh, close family. Um, so that's that's really what we were we were did up against. Did you have to go into debt? Uh, only with family members. <laughs> so in that in that case, didn't have any debt as far as like uh, debt payments for for actual loans and things like that. So I have I, I always wanted to understand this because I admire. Look, I'm just a schlumpy journalist who you know <laughs> gets behind the mic. You're out there getting your hands dirty, traveling the world, finding great coffee beans, and doing the heavy lifting and taking these risks. Do you, it's not like you're making a cold eyed appeal to a family member. Like, look, uh, Uncle Jerry. 
I can give you probably three points over what a bank is paying you. And you know me, I'm good for the money when a bank would not loan you the money. Is there a return on investment outside of them just being happy for you? With family, in my case, no. No. I mean, it was it's just generosity and, and believing in me, knowing knowing who I am for, of course, my entire life. And that's enough, you know. And um, we're very blessed with... Uh, generous family members. So in that case, no. Now, when it comes to the new place, you know, it's it's a different story. We've we've taken on some loans, some actual loans that we're going to have to pay back for the new place. Have you paid family back so far for the roaster? I mean, have, has it economically been a surprise to you? Because I see your, I see your beans in lots of places. Yeah. Um, we've, we're on the road. We're, we're, we're getting there to paying back. Um, but it's, you know, it was a substantial amount of money. We came back from overseas having saved some, but, you know, not, not um, the, the, the quantity that we needed to outright purchase the roasting machine. That's an expensive piece of kit, as well as all the other equipment and the, the build-out for, you know, re- rehabbing the roastery. So um, we're, we're in the process. Two years later, we're still in the process of, of paying back. Before we dive into the exciting stuff about you uh, raising the money for this storefront on Grace Street, um, you're you're hoping to open up. But what is it going to be called? Ironclad Cafe. We're just going to call. We're just going to call it Ironclad Coffee Roasters. Um, we did a poll, kind of a, a a focus group poll amongst folks that we know, and we put like four choices out there on, on things. You know, what what should we call the cafe? Iron, you know, one of the choices was just leave it as ironclad coffee roasters. And honestly, I didn't think that one was going to win. It won in a landslide. Because you have goodwill for the name. Because we have goodwill. We've we've involved ourselves in the community. Um, it's it's become a known quantity over the last two years, and increasingly so, which is outstanding. We're so happy about that. So I think that was a, a real eye-opener that, you know, people wanted us to just stick with ironclad coffee roasters. And that's it. That's what the, the place is called. Here's a question now, Brian. I'm the kind of guy that if you sit me next to someone at a wedding or a bar mitzvah, I'm you know it could be a funeral parlor operator, it could be a proctologist. I always say, what is the one thing I need to know about coffee? What is the one thing I need to know? Like the sushi chef, for example, will tell you, don't eat sushi on a Sunday night because it's probably the dregs of the week. Wait to have it on a Tuesday night. You know, I always want to get kind of this one nugget if I get dragged to a wedding that I don't want to go to, but. In your case, if I was just buttonholing you on the street and I've asked other coffee people this, can you walk me through the retail economics of coffee? If I get, for example, a bag of let's let's not let's not put you on the record about it, but let's say Starbucks Pike roast, mm-hmm. right? I want to know wholesale what it costs to Starbucks, cost of goods sold for them. What is the most profitable way to extract? Let's say profit, bottom line, out of a bag of what is it? A sixteen ounce bag? That's a twelve bag? ounce bag you have there. So let's take a not in your not in your letterhead, but let's say Starbucks pikes. Mm. And obviously, you're dealing with the economies of scale of Starbucks. If you had your druthers, right, out of every bag, would they sell this many cups of just plain drip coffee? Would they do cold brew? Would they do the shishi kind of, you know, espresso chino yeah. espresso drinks? Walk me through that. Well, the espresso drinks. Uh, that's where. The most profit is uh, as far as as far as drinks go, beverages. So I think I think you know more espresso drinks is is better for the bottom line. Um, drip, you know, I, th- I think uh, a cup of drip coffee is is only so expensive, but you know you can you can kind of brew it in larger batches. So I think that that kind of um, helps the economics there. But yeah, I think with with the popularity of cold brew, that's an outstanding way to. And they, they they get a lot of money for cold brew. You know, people will pay yeah, a lot. Yeah, because you you have to add a lot of water to the. 
distillate. Right. If, you, if, if you're going to cut it, exactly right. And so basically what you, what you have usually is sort of like a concentrate when you cold brew. Now, the other thing is you put X amount of water into the, to the brew and you're, you only so much get out. You know, basically it's a lot of water stays in the, in the grounds, basically. So you're, you're using a lot of coffee to get a little bit of liquid, which, of course, is a concentrate, but then you can dilute it and make it stretch farther. Um, so make- a median cup, I'm just going to slap a number on it, $5 wholesale. Like when we take it to the retail world, a, me- a median bag of coffee, a 12-ounce bag of coffee, mm-hmm. um, can yield how many 12, 16-ounce cups of drip coffee? Oh, uh, good grief. That's. <laughs> I always that's wonder if like a person is mindful of this in a retail sense. Like yeah. what's music to my ears? The cold brew toddy going, the, the fancy shishi machine going on, the espresso machine. Like if I take you to Black Hand Coffee here on the corner, I feel for those baristas. They're constantly like, grinding the little espresso thing. It's labor intensive, but you get a huge... Uh, markup, I imagine, in, in what you get to charge people. Yeah, espresso drinks are are king in terms of in terms of profitability, um, and and right, you know, rightfully so. That's a very specialized skill. The machine, depending on who, what you bought, and who it is, the machine itself is a really expensive piece of kit. So you have to factor that in, as well as the maintenance that goes into it. Those machines are finicky machines. They cost a ton to maintain and repair. Um, the skill of the person doing it, it's not just something you can learn and you know the drop of a hat. Um, so there is a lot to go that goes into preparing a single espresso drink, in addition to the coffee, the milk, and all these things that you that you have to purchase to to make the drink. So, all that all that being said, it is still the most profitable way to make a cup of coffee. Espresso, the espresso drinks. Whether you're talking about straight espresso, latte, cappuccino, it is. It is the most profitable. Whoever back of the envelope in your head about how much revenue can be wrung out of a 12 ounce bag at Starbucks. Again, I'm just taking their standard Pikes roast. A median level, like if that is used for cold brew, uh, you can't necessarily use it for espresso, right? It's not an espresso roast. Well, you could. That's that's kind of a common misconception. A discerning person would want an espresso roast. Uh, that's changing. That's changing in, in the, the more modern um, way of doing things in what's called third wave specialty coffee. Um, we don't we don't roast a whole lot specifically for espresso. We have different coffees, single origin coffees, uh, different blends. That we will reckon if somebody wants a, a certain thing for espresso, we'll, we have two or three directions we point them. But honestly, um, you can use anything for espresso. Whether or not you're going to like it or not, that's another story. Full disclosure on Robin Farzad. We're talking to Ryan O'Rourke, founder and owner of Ironclad Coffee Roasters, a wholesaler here in Central Virginia, which is taking the great dive into a retail storefront uh, to open up uh, Ironclad Roasters a Cafe uh, this May, which I'm really excited about. And I got in touch with you. You know I've been looking for an excuse to have you on for the longest time just to wonk out on, on coffee economics. But um, the local paper covered your Indiegogo campaign for the new cafe. And let me just read the, the, the lead on this essay. Does free coffee for a year get your attention? The team behind Ironclad Coffee Roasters recently launched an Indiegogo campaign to raise funds for a coffee bar, and it's offering free coffee every day for a year to anyone who's willing to invest $250 in the endeavor. According to their calculations, if you're already a daily coffee drinker, that'll save you $376 over the course of a year. Um, They quote you, we do not plan on offering a full food menu. Our philosophy is that nobody can truly be a jack of all trades, so we're not even going to attempt that. The cafe will be clearly focused on the coffee, and we'll be working with these other talented folk who have honed their own respective crafts better than we could. Close quote. 
Going back to your experience with fundraising with family, you're opening this up to a community where we take the intangible asset of goodwill and we're trying to convert it to a tangible asset, if you will. There are a lot of people out there that are rooting for you, that they know you, they've seen you on social media, they've seen your activism in the community in schools uh, with not-for-profits. You've opened your life, you're kind of the window of your life to people. Has that been translating? I mean, how's this campaign been going so far? It started off like gangbusters, and I've kind of followed a lot of um, so, um, crowdfunding trends, and and I know the way these usually go, unless it's just a, like a, a a crowdfunding campaign for a new revolutionary product, a new invention. You know, they go a thousand percent of their goal. That's that's kind of a different case, but but for a, a campaign like ours, a business, you know, kind of starting or restarting or beginning a second phase. They typically follow the, the, this this pattern. It starts out like gangbusters. You have a middle section that is kind of doldrums and not a whole lot happens, which is where we are right now, fully anticipated. And then the last week or so, in the last few days of the campaign, you get another you know shot of of, um, of adrenaline. investments, adrenaline, and yeah, investments. And so that's that's kind of it's unfolding exactly like we thought it would. Um, it's it's going a bit slow. Uh, honestly, we thought there'd be more. More interest in things like what you mentioned from the article, the the quote unquote free coffee. Now, we're not in the impression that it's it's free coffee, but basically you're getting a lot of free coffee because we're charging you, you know, if if you invest two hundred fifty dollars, you get something that's worth something like around six hundred and something dollars over the year. So it's not that it's free, but if you make that investment every time you walk into our cafe for that first year, your coffee's paid for. It's a pretty cool feeling to walk in and know your your tab has been paid. Um, so we we designed this campaign to make sure every perk package we offered was generous. In other words, people get something well above the monetary value for what they give. We we designed it that way on purpose because we've followed other campaigns where. Uh, little if nothing was offered in terms of perks and those campaigns were surprisingly successful so Mm. we thought well hey if we offer something well above in monetary value what the person has invested you know who's not going to want to contribute to that so let me flesh this out a bit it says uh, you can find a link on the indiegogo campaign at ironcladcoffee.com the more casual coffee drinker will receive a bag of limited edition beans for a 15 dollars donation and anyone who gives 100 bucks will get access to one of ironclad's three coffee 101 courses Bordering on Obsessed with All Things Coffee, two lucky donors who give $2,500 will be invited to travel with O'Rourke and Roaster Mike Jarrett to a coffee farm in Guatemala next year. To my mind, I mean, what could be better? You're getting kind of a straddling of heart and mind. And again, I'm not, I'm not here to kind of pump this, but I'm thinking I come from a Wall Street background. And this stuff was just purely kind of mercenary, cold-eyed calculation. You get an IPO prospectus. Yeah, I mean, I, eBay, an interesting thing, but is it going to make me money? Is this going to be a 10-bagger type thing? Um, are you offering any upside to retail investors outside of kind of the karmic upside of helping Ryan and a, and a kind of a small biz? Any upside well, other, other than the perk packages yeah. and things? I mean, that's like that is the, – the perks are the upside. So really. what about on the flip side? You're, you're, you, you stressed with me offline that – this is by no means the only stretch of fundraising. You're trying to raise how much through Indiegogo? Indiegogo, we have a goal of 25000 25000 yeah. What do you need to raise overall for this story, if you're willing to share that? Well, the build-out, the outfit with all the equipment and everything all told is going to be in excess of $100,000. Are you also going back to friends and family for this? 
a bit. Yes. How so. does a person raise money from cold-eyed investors? This is what I want to know. Um, like, you know, I've, we've been meaning to have Ian Kelly of Sugar Shack Donuts in. He's just such a busy guy. He's gone from one or two to more than a dozen. Um, and the word on the street was that the economics were great. He paid back investors before they ever imagined, and people came back to him and wanted more. There has to be something inherently appealing about the return on investment of coffee uh, and what you bring in terms of the granularity of it, pun intended, right? <laughs> Outside of Starbucks and the passion, right. um, you can walk into a place like Black Hand and see how crowded it is. You can walk into a place like Lamplighter on Addison Street, and that's been an expanding thing. What are you telling the cold-eyed institutional investors, the ones that don't put a lot of emphasis on the, the heart aspect of this? Yeah, well, the the cold-eyed ones, they they want numbers, of course. And fortunately, we're, we're able to show significant growth from year one to year two. So, I mean, that's that's really what they care about. Um, and, you know, our projections, once the cafe opens, how that affects our bottom line with the addition of the retail component, um, that's that's what they care about. And that's that's pretty much it. So that's why the, the Indiegogo, one of the reasons the Indiegogo, the crowdfunding piece appealed to us so much because we're connecting with people who really care about the product, really care about the story behind the product, how we how we do the product. They care about, uh, in some cases at least, they care about us and um, what Ironclad has become, what we've been able to do in the first two years. That's to me, that's <laughs> that's a lot more fulfilling. And getting people um, involved and connected to the cafe and being able to say, you know, I had a I had a small piece in helping this cafe open. That's that's pretty cool. And and obviously the the institutional investors doesn't really register. What is a typical question that an institutional investor would ask you? And by the way, I'm grateful to you for opening this up. This is this is candid because I think people out there listening, all these people have dreams of opening up a small biz. There are huge perils to it. There are enormous obstacles. You've already gone through kind of an initial baptism with the wholesale business. What are the kinds of questions? Suppose you get time of day with a wealthy real estate investor or a restaurant owner banks uh, are still giving you nothing for your cash. Mm. There is a competition for capital. What what how does a conversation go? Well, I mean, they they want numbers. They want they want to know what you did this year, you know, uh, what you did the first year, the next year. Um, they want to know what your projections are obviously, um, and they want to know what's in it for them. So, that's 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 why um, we've we've relied heavily on family and that's why we've gone back to this um, the crowdfunding because it's it's to, to us it's just a much more appealing way to do it. We don't need the kind of you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars or million dollars that it takes to open up say like a brewery. I know sure. some of the guys that open up the breweries and like a million bucks you know boom and then beyond that. So fortunately, we don't need that kind of capital. Um, it's it's a smaller scale capital, which enables us to do friends and family, Indiegogo, and, of course... Some mix. Yeah, exactly. You're ideally looking for an in, one institutional person to maybe write a $25,000 check and then do the rest combination of friends and family? Exactly, yeah. Are you able to offer them some sort... Is it is it done through a loan or equity? Do people turn around and say, no, Ryan, if I do this, and there's a high, always a high risk with the restaurant business of shutdown, I want equity in it. I want to have upside with you in the biz. We've had offers for that and questions about that, and what we've basically said for now... With this first cafe, the the roastery set, you know, we're we're good there. But for the first cafe, we want to keep it. We want to keep 100% equity. If and when we expand to another location or two, if that's a big if, may not ever want to do that. But if we do, I think at that point, that's when we start entertaining equity. You know, giving up pieces of equity um, at that point. But for now, um, with the first location, we 
needs to stay a family business. Debt financing. Now, people you, people in finance don't seem to realize that equity is a very expensive capital. I mean, if you know Microsoft went off buying things with its stock in 1980, it turns out that stock would have been worth billions of dollars. Now, you know, like I say with Sugar Shack, if he went around willy nilly giving out equity initially, as the company expanded, it turns out you 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 paid someone with something you thought that was a buck, but it ends up being fifty dollars, right? right? If, yeah. if it becomes a growth business, and you don't want to root against yourself. Um, Tell me how it's going. Tell me how the conversations are going at this point. So you feel like you have – are there kind of three buckets in this world? You have the, the the small crowdfunding bucket. You have friends and family. You have institutions. What are some of the considerations, rent, labor? I mean as you cross this river and get into the retail business, which is which is pretty cutthroat. Yep. Yeah, rent is is there absolutely. Um, equipment costs, labor for sure, um, all those, all the above. That's that's all uh, considered. Again, though, with with uh, the family side and the the crowdfunding side, those things don't enter into the picture. They just they're not they're not lending us the money because they're concerned about those things. That's purely institutional. That's purely you know lenders that that care about those things. So again, the the less we have to deal with those things, we know where we're at, and you know the the way we're able to answer the questions, even for the the banks or the institutions, they're happy enough with them, so that's good. But we just want to keep that to a minimum as much as possible, and at least for this first cafe, maximize you know our own money that we've saved through the business, friends and family, and the the crowdfunding. The difficult question is. With a startup, I mean, are you paying yourself? I've had to pay myself. I didn't want, I didn't want to pay myself as much as I'm paying myself. But um, one of the things that in, that's interesting about my situation is that when I started Ironclad, um, my wife was working full time, had a good job, making good money. And she was, she was really the breadwinner, which enabled me to, well, get through the first few months, which was... I mean, basically, almost nothing coming in because we were just such a new kid on the block. Sure. Nobody knew the name Ironclad. We'd give out samples of the, of the coffee, and people would love it, and that was a really good sign, a, a good, good sign for things to come, and, and indeed it has been um, because of the you know, quality of the product, which has been great. But the first few months, you know, that, was, that was just nothing coming in. So fortunately, my wife, just back, we were just back from Ireland. She was able to land a good job right away. She was the virtually the sole breadwinner. Now... Interesting thing happened about a year later. Um, we decided at the, you know, very very quickly um, to adopt a, a baby boy overseas uh, before he was even born, and we decided we wanted to do that, and we did, and we couldn't. You know, we're just so thrilled with the fact that we did that, and wonderful little boy wouldn't change it for the world. Um, but that meant cutting her hours way back, and all of a sudden, I had to. <laughs> I had to start paying myself something fairly significant, and then all of a sudden, when we get back with Titus, our baby boy, uh, back in the back in the states, we find out about two months later. Oh, my wife is also pregnant. We didn't even know it at the time. So now she is a full time at home stay at home mom. She doesn't work at all, which means I have to pay myself a pretty decent salary to be the sole breadwinner. So yeah, it's been interesting going from the transition to not wanting to pay myself at all and needing to not pay myself at all or very little to now I'm the sole breadwinner and I have to pay myself a decent salary or else we'll be homeless. So basically it's, it's, it's been interesting. Did you have to ramp up on staff for the wholesaler as it grew? A little bit. 
Um, with the wholesale, it's it's not the same as retail. Obviously, the the staff needs the the labor needs. Um, I hired um, my right hand man, Mike Jarrett, and he's been fantastic in in helping me roast and pack the coffee and deliver the coffee. We have one other part time, very part time person, and that's it. That's our staff, and we're able to we're able to roast you know a lot of coffee every week, and we're we're even able to scale up even with that limited staff because the wholesale business is the way it is. I think with some flexibility there in terms of hours and things, um, we're able to keep a pretty small staff um, because of that. Now, when the retail starts, that's that's a whole different ballgame. Ryan, walk me through how you get a foot in the door. In addition to, I mean, the bigger players here, Blanchard's, Lamplighter, Black Hand, um, you know, the, the mega regional players. I mean, Starbucks wants a foot in the door. You go to a subway and it uses, I don't know, Seattle's best or what it is. Do you, do you just say, like, give me a minute. I want you to try my coffee, get into my ethos and, and see if I can potentially win your business. I don't even know how you navigate that. There are all these, they're office supply companies that deal with coffee delivery. There are full service coffee delivery companies. Uh, there's, uh, you know, one of the enormous distributors here is, uh, uh, what, what is it? What, West Creek, what is the parent company? That the, one of the biggest food service suppliers in the world, like competes with Cisco. Um, they all have their in-house brands that they want to push. How do you get that do you cold call? Do you email? Do you show up with coffee? Do you do you wildcat? What is what's involved? It's a case by case basis, but we've we've definitely found that you know email is, for the most part, not effective. And in most cases, sometimes it is, but in most cases, it's it's not an effective way to establish communication. Maybe as a first introduction, but then we almost always have to follow up with an in-person visit or something of that nature. Um, we make sure we always take coffee with us because we think the product speaks for itself. Um, and our prices are set um, to be very, very fair. And so we think the product, the price speaks for itself. And then, you know, we, we ask, what we like to do is ask those people that are considering using our coffee to to check in with some of our other customers, our other clients, and get their take on on our our service and how we how we treat them. Who was your first big catch as a wholesale client? The first big catch uh, was the Urban Farmhouse. That was that was the one that kind of kind of set us on our way, and they're still with us, and we're thankful for that. Um, and then from there, you know, that was when I was able to bring Mike on board um, to help me with the the roasting and the packing. And having him on board as a, as a second set of eyes and a second person to see some opportunities out there that we can maybe go talk to this place or this establishment or this restaurant or this cafe has been great because it's 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 doubled the set of eyes looking at the landscape in Richmond and, and further afield as well. So, so yeah, I mean, like, t- we, we, we have to take the coffee with us. That's just... No matter what we say, you know the the the, the proof is in the bag. The is there? Is... Do you have like a razzle dazzle roast or method? I mean, I know you know a friend who runs Alchemy Coffee. Uh, this guy has like he has like a spectrometer thing that he can mm. attach to an iPad. You talk about Wonkistan, right? I try to talk to him about my AeroPress or cold press. He's like, <laughs> let me show you what I have. You know, it's like Walter White from Breaking yeah, Bad. Exactly. What is your wham bam wow? Uh, roast and method and, and flavor to kind of show up with someone if you get like 10 minutes with them? We Well, first, we have to find out what they like, what they're looking for, because coffee is is so different depending on where it's grown, the altitude, you know, how it's processed. It's so different. If they're looking for something, you know, very low acidity, they're used to maybe a much darker roasted coffee, um, something that's interesting. And I think, again, one of the things that sets us apart a little bit is that we don't 
venture into the darker side of things too much, and there's a whole list of reasons why we don't do that. Stay we, away from yeah. the dark side, <laughs> exactly. Ryan. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, we, we don't have enough time here to, to delve into all the, the science behind sure. that and the reasons for that, but suffice it to say there's a lot of reasons we stray away from that end of the spectrum. So if, if they're used to, say, like a dark roast, then we find that out, and then we have things. We know what that means. We know they like a lower-acid coffee. They don't like things too bright and crazy and something that's going to knock their socks off with the you know uber-light roast. So we know what to give them. We'll give them something a little bit richer. Um, if they're into something, you know, coffees that are a bit more wild and and have a bit more character to them, we know we need to bring them this coffee or that coffee. So it's it's kind of like, you know, talking to enough people over time, you kind of you kind of talk to them and understand inherently what it is they like, what it is they're looking for, and then we know kind of in our mental catalog which coffee we need to bring them to to sample. And it's been that's been kind of cool to to evolve that way and to be able to decode uh, a casual coffee drinker's words and then to kind of know, boom, you know, it pops into your head exactly which coffee or which two or three coffees it is that they will like. And that's what you bring them. And, you know, nine times out of 10, it's spot on. I got to tell you my two coffee experiences by way of background. I've never been a huge fan of Starbucks coffee. I kind of feel like it's burnt and standard. It does the job because it's ubiquitous. But the one here that had the clover machine in Carytown, the only clover machine, which is this $20,000 contraption that they bought and made exclusive. It just kind of has pistons and like a squeegee and you know, wipe it out. And um, it churned out this like Ethiopian Yerk Chafe, like low acid. Part of it is the theater of watching this machine pump it out. And I had it and it was so uplifting. Whether I would agree <laughs> to always pay $5 a cup for it, doubtful. Yeah. Another example was Panther Coffee in Miami. The first time I tried cold brew coffee, I was with my brother in Wynwood, Miami, in the arts district. And he's like, just try this, but drink it slowly, lest you have a heart attack, bro. <laughs> and I tried it, and I saw the good Lord's eyes, man. He gave me an empanada, man. I, I, I walked out like, I'm the king of the world. And then I crashed. And that was my introduction <laughs> to cold brew. Yeah. You know, I'm an equal opportunity uh, consumer. I like, I, I like cold brew some days. I like a dark brew. I like you know, if, if Starbucks just gets the job done, I don't know if I've ever become so passionate about coffee because it seems like it's so fungible. It's available everywhere. That it is. It is. It's available lots of places from <laughs> the worst stuff on up to the best stuff. Um, but yeah, the the you asked a little bit earlier, what's the one thing that I would want people to know um, about coffee? And I would say... As a maxim, as a generally true statement, you do get what you pay for. Now, your $5 cup of um, clover thing, you know, that's, that's, that's debatable there. Um, but as a general rule in coffee, you do get what you pay for. If you get a cup of coffee for $0.99, cents, a 20-ounce cup of coffee for $0.99, cents, there's a reason for that. You know, now that's not to say people can't overcharge for coffee, um, like ridiculously overcharge. That, that does happen, but... But generally speaking, you do get what you pay for. If, if a coffee is more expensive, there's there's generally a reason for that. And I think if people could see what happens from seed to cup, as the as kind of like a coffee saying now goes, from seed to cup, um, how many hands are involved in touching each coffee bean before it even gets to us in, in Scott's edition, how many hands have touched and cultivated and processed and packed and... You know that that one coffee bean. Um, it's a huge amount of people before it even lands in our roastery, and you know the the profit margins from from farmer to us 
maybe not as big as a lot of people think. I recently saw a really good graphic on that. I'll share with you later on. That every cup's margins, like how much is cost of goods sold, how much is labor. Exactly. And each step of the way and what the actual profit margins are. And it's really eye-opening. So if people could see specialty-grade coffee now, I'm not talking commodity-grade coffee, gas station coffee. I'm talking specialty-grade coffee, the stuff that we're dealing with. The profit margins um, from, from, from seed to cup are maybe not as much as <laughs> we, we like to think they are. And honestly, uh, I heard this before I even went in, into the business, coffee should be significantly more expensive than it actually is. A cup mm-hmm. of coffee should cost us significantly more than it does. And I thought that was kind of, you know, coffee costs X amount of dollars. That's, that's a lot of money for a cup of coffee. You hear that a lot. But then when I really delved into it, and prepared for this business and did the research, it's true. Coffee should cost us a lot more. We've we've taken it for granted as just a thing that just appears there magically, you know, and just should cost us a, f- a few pennies per cup. It's not that way. If you go all the way back and watch what's happening from the farm level to us, coffee should actually cost us. And I know that's that's not going to be a popular statement with a lot of people. Ryan, bro, I think you got to get yourself a civet cat or two now. <laughs> no, we're going to stay, we stay away from the gimmicks. We stay away from the, and although like... I, Maybe you could convince a raccoon to do the same job. Uh, you know? Yeah, probably. Or, or, or my dogs. I mean, my dogs could do it. I could, <laughs> that's the thing. They could do just as good of a job, but... You know, the, the coffee industry is is rife with gimmicks. It really is. And we try to stay away from that as much as possible. Our our company, you know, ethos, our little tagline is no fimble famble, mm-hmm. which is an old Victorian slang way of basically saying no nonsense, cut the crap, you know, that sort of thing. No messing around. We try to we try to stay away from a lot of the Just why I'm honored stuff. you're on my show because I love the messing around and <laughs> crap talk and everything. We're talking to Ryan O'Rourke, founder and owner of Ironclad Coffee Roasters, which is about to expand, take this huge leap of faith from, from wholesaling uh, bags of coffee uh, to businesses to opening up a cafe, some of which involves uh, crowdfunding on Indiegogo. Um, in the few minutes we have left, I'd love to ask you about marketing how you value marketing. It's a very squishy return on investment. I think that one thing you guys do really well is, you know, you and your partner and the limited overhead that you have at the roastery in Scott's edition, you roll up your sleeves and you take great videos on Twitter and Facebook and some are in slow-mo. And what people don't necessarily appreciate is that so many people now have this powerful camcorder and, and, you know, 4K photo taker in some respects in their hands, and they can do things that it used to be that only specialized marketing shops could do. Yeah, the phones are ridiculous with their abilities to to put out a professional product. And so you've got it, like you said, it's in your hands. Use it to its fullest capabilities as much as your talent level allows. I mean, we're not, <laughs> we're not trained, you know, videographers or, or photographers, but through practice and playing around, we've learned what the what the phone's capable of, and we just we have fun with it, really, because the things you can do with video and photos and the the really simple video editing apps to overlay music and to splice things, it's just it's so easy now. I don't really see any reason not to do that, and people people seem to enjoy it. Have you chummed the waters with offers for businesses? Like, for example, we have this new thing, fell off a boat, stop by, try it out. You know, quote this code. I, I, you know, I don't know, like flash sale type stuff. With, Not so much so. And with businesses, haven't done too much of that. No. Um, in terms, are you are you talking about in terms of like special coffees or special deals? I mean, to the extent special that deals. so much of this stuff has moved to social media on Instagram and on Twitter, put an RVA or RVA dine hashtag. I don't know. I'm just trying to. I'm trying to get a sense for when when was it worthwhile for you to spend on marketing. 
the yeah like I mean you were struggling to pay yourself right yeah struggling at first to pay to pay myself so really you know all just kind of grassroots marketing and honestly we haven't branched out too much from that um, we've we've tried to involve ourselves in the community which I think is sort of a method of marketing but that's not really the primary reason we did it um, I've kind of been it's been a been a hobby of mine everywhere I've lived whether I was in business or not to be involved with community community cleanups you know picking up litter or or with the schools or this charity or that charity SPCA it's just kind of almost like a kind of a hobby of mine so but that's I guess that has been a bit of a of a of a marketing channel that way um, just as a have newspapers outcome. and publications and shows been coming to you as you've kind of become as you've ex- established mindshare. Uh, a bit, yeah, a little bit. Um, more wouldn't hurt, but um, but but there's, there's been a little bit of that. And really, our marketing, like you say, is is primarily just done through social media and just kind of organic grassroots stuff. And we try to create a following and let people know that we are fun. We have a good product, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. I think that was one of the things from from the from the get go. Um, my my passion in this is to let people know, okay, these guys know coffee. They know what they're doing. They have great coffee, but they don't take themselves too seriously in doing that because I've seen I've seen both ends opposite of that, okay? Yeah, they have fun, but the coffee's crap. Or, oh, yeah, the coffee's amazing, but eh, they, maybe they take themselves a little bit too seriously. So we wanted to, we wanted to you know— we wanted to pr- portray an image that is a true image that we know coffee, we have great coffee— but also we don't take ourselves too seriously. We like to have fun. At the end of the day, it's just a beverage, mm. honestly. And we need to remember that. What are you anticipating in terms of this uh, storefront? Uh, I mean, is it keeping you up at night? You are a father. Oh, yeah. You're a passionate father. You're a passionate <laughs> community person. This is kind of why the you know, the fellowship, this is why I reached out to you. And uh, I'm, I'm interested in kind of seeing this go from – you know, twinkle in your eye. I remember when you guys first came out, and I remember when you almost—I won't say crowdfunded, but crowdsourced the 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 name of your your Victorian era, uh, you know, mascot, yep. if you will, Mister Tolliver. Yep. Um, and you're kind of moving with the community as well into this. You're really opening up yourself and being vulnerable and saying, "Look, I'm taking this leap of faith, and I'm doing this as a father, and and people are getting to know you." What are the insecurities and the exhilarations that you have every night kind of before you close your eyes and go to bed? Interestingly enough, <laughs> I'm, I'm so tired at the end of the day at like 9 o'clock, which is ridiculous, that I'm like can't keep my eyes open at 9 o'clock at night. That's, it's crazy to me. But that's, that's how, I guess, busy and, and um, active I've become with, with the business side of things and then with the family side of things. So I'm, I'm exhausted, and the, the kids don't go to bed. The babies don't go to bed too, too long before I do. So I have a really easy time falling asleep, but then I'll wake up in the middle of the night at one o'clock or two o'clock or three o'clock. Sometimes it's because a baby's crying. Sometimes I just wake up. And whenever that happens, it takes me a good hour, hour and a half, two hours to get back to sleep because my mind just starts racing about the cafe. Oh, what are we going to do over here? What kind of lights are we going to have over here? I like this feature there. Are we going to have this sort of equipment? Are we going to have that sort of equipment? The costs, the unknowns, all these sorts of things. So it is definitely been, you know, literally keeping me up at night. Um, and that's that's in a, a positive way and I guess maybe to a negative way, just a little bit of, you know, fear of the unknown. But but I would say a heck of a lot more, a heck of a lot more excitement than than 
um, fear. There's, I wouldn't even use the word fear. Um, it's going to be successful. We scouted out this location for over two years because my wife and I lived a block away from this building for over two years. We know that we know Shaco Bottom. We know that spot. It's going to be successful. It's just you know, getting getting there and getting open. What do you know about selling the cup though? The cup becomes a whole different thing, and especially when you get to the again granularity of it. Somebody comes in and has in their mind like, "I want to give us a try. How about a venti? Ba 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 ba. You know, mix in almond milk. Uh, can use a stevia. I don't. I don't know how that stuff works. It's labor intensive, time intensive. Uh, it's decidedly B to C, right? And mm-hmm. so you have to deal with people. You have to deal with people lingering around and not buying anything <laughs> just on their Wi-Fi. Yeah, that's a consideration. I was just reading an article in New York Times about that just last week. That, that challenge of folks who do hang out and maybe just buy a $2 cup of coffee and hang out for six hours. I mean, it's something you have to think about. Do you think about cattle prods? <laughs> yeah, it's crossed my mind or something to that effect. But, yeah, it's, it's a consideration. There's a lot of considerations like that. It Our shop, our cafe is going to be a place just because of the facility itself, the building that it's in. It's going to be a place that people want to hang out. It's a cool place, even before we've done anything to it and built it out. It's a neat place. So I know people are going to want to come there just to hang out. Um, But then our goal is and our our intention is to make the product, the cafe, the experience, the customer experience, the the customer service, the way we treat them, it's going to match. It's going to be first class all the way. That's our intention, and that's that's what we plan to do. So, um, you know, that's I've been to enough cafes in enough places in my life to know what I don't want it to be and what I do want it to be. Um, my, my parents owned and operated two coffee shops for a number of years, and I was around that. Are you sharing lot. notes with them on this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, my, especially my dad. He's, he's heavily involved in, you know, advising and ideas, and I don't, I don't take all his ideas. Does it's, your dad live here? He lives in Tennessee. Yeah, he's in Tennessee. So it's, it's all done through phone or Facebook message or something like that. So um, he's got a whole list of ideas, and he knows I'll— I'll hang on to some and I'll scrap others, and he's he's good with that. He's a fantastic fellow. Um, so and that that is that's been that was kind of. <laughs> I my... can totally. By the way, I can totally say, son. In fact, I got <laughs> I got our first sale up on the wall. See where I framed that nickel? No, yeah, it's very exactly. different right now. You know. Yes, yes, yes. But his 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 experience has been extremely valuable to me. So, um, yeah, that that experience with with their place, and then of course. Through the years, going all over the place to all different cafes, I've got a real picture in my head of what I want it to be and what I don't want it to be. So I think that's that's helped a lot. What do you have to bring in in the way of personnel and marketing? How is this different from um, you know the way you launched the roastery? Personnel, it's going to be a whole different set of skill set um, and folks that are that are skilled in the the art of the barista and and preparing. Uh, the drinks and knowing how to do that. Although I will say, um, I am more interested in the person themselves than what skills they have. Um, we can teach them the coffee side of things. You, there are certain things you can't teach. You can't teach personality for the most part. You cannot teach work ethic. You can't teach um, people's ability to make someone else feel wanted and valued. That customer service, that almost innate ability to just make a customer feel awesome. And you, in my experience, you can't teach very much of that. So I am more interested in the person and who they are and what inherent skill set they have within themselves apart from making a cup of coffee. That's, that's secondary. We can teach that. We can teach those skills. So when we hire and we go out looking for our baristas, we're hiring people, not a skill set. 
I wish you the best of luck, good sir. Thank you. Ryan O'Rourke, founder and owner of Ironclad Coffee Roasters, which is about to open up, which is fundraising for, what is it called? Ironclad Coffee Roasters. <laughs> the cafe, the storefront. That's it. Targeting, targeting a Memorial Day opening? We're targeting sometime in May. Sometime in May. My ulterior motive in this is for you to become so big and so badass that you sponsor my show someday. That would be I awesome. Say, oh, way back when, man. I would you love know, to sponsor that full guy. disclosure. That would uh, be awesome. I am rooting for you as a fellow father. I have to, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say that I am, I am biased in this. I want you to win. And that's the difference is that you're a fellow father. You're a person in the community. You win, I win. I mean, the equity return to me is not, you know, getting the coffee cups for free or anything like this. It's, it's you thriving. And I feel like I got your back. You know who I am. You've been on my show. And that's kind of the beauty of, you know, I talked to Rick Hood, who sponsors uh, this show at Elwood Thompson. That's the, that's the beauty of kind of a real local feel in this town, as opposed to, you know, a Starbucks wholesaler. You know, I did notice that, uh, did you know that Panera and Pete's Coffee and Krispy Kreme and Keurig, they're all rolled up into this one giant conglomerate right now. Did it's know. getting ever harder. The Unilevers of the world and the P&Gs of the world and the Cisco Food Service. So, you know, you're really an iconoclast kind of stepping up and, and doing this on your own. Yeah, that's um, it's 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 so different that that mega, mega, mega corporation um, way of doing things and then versus little, little ironclad coffee roasters over here. But the evidence is in the cup, and the evidence is in the way we'll treat you. The evidence is in the attention we'll give you. It's it's all it's stark. And shame on me, as I never I never uh, resist the the chance to you know show you a good punchline. But this literally happened to me at a Starbucks four years ago. I show up and I said, um, "Oh, they have the light roast. It's in the morning. I can get it. They haven't taken it off the, the urn yet." And I said to the barista in front of me. Um, Yes, may I please have your veranda with an extra cup underneath? I just want the the small version of it. And she didn't even bat an eyelash. She turns around to the other person. And she's like, yeah, can you give me a tall blonde and a D cup? And everybody looks at me. I was like, yes, I will. I like that. Tip your waiters. Try the veal, everybody. Try Ironclad Coffee Roasters when it opens in May. Thank you so much, Ryan O'Rourke. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. You can find us and love us. I do need your love on NPR One. It's a great app and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. I will repeat, on iTunes, subscribe at FullDRadio.com. On Twitter, we're at FullDRadio, Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Holler if you'd like to sponsor. You can, you know, slide into my DMs. Hey, listeners, we are robustly exotic, nutty but fruity, earthy fair traders. I'm Robin Farzan. Back with you next week. They got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. Man, they got a gang of coffee in Brazil Hey, Pedro, get the flashlight, I cannot find the sugar